Welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode 11, Joseph and Jesus. In this episode, we're going to look at the Gospels as a theological view of the life of Christ. When the Gospels were originally written and read, how do you think that the people read them? Did they read them like a newspaper, like we do today? Facts and dates, times and people and places. There's some of that el- those elements in there. But is that the way that the truth was being conveyed? Or did they read it from a non-Western, more non-linear perspective? We need to remember that the Christians of the first 70 years of the Common Era, they continued to be part of the synagogues. They were exposed to the weekly readings of, from the law, the prophets, and the writings. They continued to be part of that synagogue liturgy, the liturgy that had existed for a couple of hundred years at this point. But after AD 70, after the destruction of the temple during the Jewish and Roman wars, uh, their rift between uh, the Jews in the synagogue and the Jews that believed in Christ as the Messiah became unreconcilable. Not having access to those documents led the first Christians on a quest to fill that void, to have a liturgical uh, map to guide them through their Sabbath meetings. And the stories that were readily at hand were both the stories of the life of Christ and what he did and what, his, what the meaning of his ministry was all about, and the stories of Israel's history, their hopes and their dreams. And coupling those two things together, the gospel writers began to create this creative narrative about the life of Christ so that that first century Christian gatherings could consider what the life of Christ meant and how it fulfilled the hopes of Israel. If we were to look at the Gospels, they were all written probably after A.D. 70. Mark was written from probably 70 to 75 A.D. Uh, Matthew, who leverages 90% of the Gospel of Mark, was probably written 75 to 85. Uh, Luke was probably written from 85 to 95, and it does appear that Luke leverages both Matthew and uh, Mark. And then John, sometime after 95. Uh, They were written, as I said earlier, to fill that Sabbath void. They were all written to fill that Sabbath void for having a liturgical reading, a weekly reading that mapped them through the calendar year, something that they had had access to for generations. We need to remember, again, that until about 150 of the Common Era, the church was predominantly Jewish. But after that time, it was predominantly Gentile. It was predominantly Western. And as such, they lacked the perspective and the historical context to interpret the stories of Jesus. They lost those interpretive keys that were only found within that deeply Jewish world. The authors of the Gospels We're trying to convey the truth about the life and actions of Jesus using the stories of the Hebrew scriptures. They were trying to say, 
this is kind of like that, very similar to what we see in the prophets looking back to the time of Moses. For example, in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, you've got this wilderness journey, and it's this hope of a Babylonian release, that Israel is in Babylonian captivity, and they're going to be released someday to return to the promised land, and this release was going to be something like the wilderness journey of the children of Israel when they left Egypt to go to the promised land originally. This was the way that the prophets worked. The Jewish mind worked by saying, this is kind of like that. As a matter of fact, Hosea, when he's trying to express the hopes of Israel in Hosea 11:1, 1 said, out of Egypt have I called my son. Reflecting back on what Moses said to Pharaoh in, in Exodus, the third chapter and fourth chapter. So we're not to be surprised when we see the Jewish authors of the first century, the gospel writers, are reflecting on the story and life of Christ using the perspective of what it was and what a storyline that they all had well formed in their minds and their imaginations. One example is the story of Joseph. He's the stepfather of Jesus. Uh, Matthew has a very interesting perspective on Joseph. And I want to look at three or four verses, the only ones that we have, by the way, that inform us of the life of Joseph. The first one is in Matthew 1.16. This is at the end of the genealogy of Jesus. This is how Matthew starts his gospel out, you know, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When he gets down to the 16th verse, he's coming up to the final people in the lineage. And he says, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. I think that's interesting that here it says that Jacob is the father of Joseph, but if you were to go over and look at Luke's version in chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says that Joseph is the son of Heli. You know, Christians don't need to go now running and burying their head and saying, oh my God, this in." There's, uh, you know, an inconsistency in the historical narrative. Uh, let's bury our head in shame. No, I think what we need to do is say, what is the theological point that these men are trying to make? And then maybe that informs us of a greater truth than what the real name of jo Jesus' stepfather might have been. Or what Jesus' stepfather's father might have been. I mean, I'm having a hard time. If I go back three generations, I don't even know who my, <laughs> the names of my parents, my four parents. But look at that, Matthew 1.16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The next words about Joseph, in the 19th verse, it says that Joseph uh, was betrothed to Mary, and before they came together, he's talking about coming together sexually, he was, she was found to be with child from, and it says here, Matthew says, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, he was being a just man. He didn't believe that all that stuff about the Holy Spirit. So he said, there ain't no right, man. Some, she's been up to something. And he's going to put her away quietly. I mean, he, he might have had the right, according to the law, though they didn't execute this very often, he might have had the right to have her executed for cheating on him. But instead, because he was a just man, he just said, hey, listen, I'm going I'm to divorce her quietly. But while he was thinking about that, Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, 
The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bear this son, and they're going to call his name Jesus. And then he quotes this prophet Isaiah. And we're going to see this, come back to this, uh, because there's a conflict that Isaiah is dealing with when he says these words. But these are the words that, of Isaiah, and they're the words that are chosen by Matthew right here at this point. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah just said, Behold, a maiden shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Joseph woke from his dream. So now what do we know about Joseph? We know that he's the son of Jacob, according to Matthew. He's the husband of Mary, and he's a dreamer of dreams. Somehow, God is dealing with him through dreams in order to take proper action. Let's look at the two other verses in Matthew that reference Joseph. Now let's look at the next verse that references Joseph. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Wow, another dream. And he said, rise, take up the child and the mother, flee to Egypt, remain there, until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I think that's interesting. Here's a second dream that this Joseph, the son of Jacob, has. And in this dream, he's now showing another quality. Matthew is showing another characteristic of this stepfather of Jesus, and that is as protector of the seed. He's the protector of Jesus. He's going to not let anything happen to him. That's, I think that becomes very important. There's a whole lot we can get into here because Herod's trying to kill Jesus. What Matthew's trying to do here is he's trying to weave together this story of Joseph and Jesus and then how Jesus later on begins to represent and reflect the life of Moses, right? Just like Moses, was tried, they tried to kill uh, the children at Moses' age level. Pharaoh did. He tried to kill him. And it says... A pharaoh rose up that did not know Joseph. And when he did, he started killing the children that were under two years of age. And Moses was saved, and Pharaoh's daughter pulls it out as the story goes. And then Moses was raised in, uh, you know, Pharaoh's house. And then he becomes the deliverer, and the rest is history. But what we're going to see is that kind of narrative playing out, that Jesus is kind of like a greater Moses, and we're going to see that at the, at the baptismal waters. We're going to see it when Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted. And all the things that he quotes in there are verses from Deuteronomy when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And then Jesus is going to return in power and great authority. And he's going to gather people on the mountain and he's going to give them laws, what we call the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So you see how this... Matthew was weaving in this idea of Moses and Jesus. But for now, what we're going to focus on is this idea of Joseph and Jesus. What could Matthew mean by showing that Joseph, the, the son of Jacob, the husband of Mary, is a dreamer of dreams, and he saves Jesus by taking him into Egypt? Again, the final verse is chapter 2, verse 19. 
It says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So now Joseph and the family are in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So now Joseph has a third dream. So to summarize, what do we know about Joseph? He's the son of Jacob. He's a dreamer of dreams. He saves the life of Jesus by taking him into Egypt. And then at the appropriate time, he has another dream and returns Jesus back to the promised land, back to Israel. Nice little encapsulation of what we know about Joseph. Okay, I think it's very important for us to step back and kind of think about how the first century Jews would have been hearing this story. I mean, right off the bat, they'd be going like, right, I get where you're going with this. Joseph, the son of Jacob, a dreamer of dreams. When did we see that last? And he's taking care of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Judah. Hmm. Where does this, where's this all going? See, they would know, they would have these stories. They knew the relationships. It's like, if you've ever visited a church where there's a lot of family ties, it's like, oh, well, he's connected with that guy and she's connected with him and they're allowed, you know, and you've got this nuanced and matrixed relational organization that you know because you're part of that context. But somebody coming in goes, wow, what is everybody, your family tree, a straight line? Well, in Israel's case, when they were hearing Joseph and Jesus, the son of Judah, they, they were seeing all years and years of tribalism and struggle between these two powerful clans within Israel, the clan of Judah and the clan of Joseph. Judah and Joseph were two of the 12 children of Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham. So there's one of the big three patriarchs, right? So then Jacob comes along, and he falls in love with this beautiful girl, Rachel, and he wants to marry her. But Rachel was the younger sister, if you remember the story. And in this, the, as the younger sister, she could not marry before Leah was married. So Laban, Jacob's father-in-law or soon-to-be father-in-law, he tricks him and he says, yeah, here's the wedding, blah, blah, blah. And that next morning they wake up and it's, he realizes it's Leah. What's going on here? Hey, this is a big trick. You've, you've pulled the wool over my eyes. So he says, well, if you work for me for another seven years, I'll give you Rachel as well. So Rachel becomes his wife. But Rachel's barren. The one he loves is barren. But Leah, she's having babies, four straight. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. The big, I mean, right out of the gate, she has four sons for Jacob. Jacob is stoked. Well, when Rachel sees that, she goes, well, I'm barren, so I'm going to give my servant girl as a wife to Jacob and let him have children for me through her. It's a weird kind of uh, ancient practice. And she has a couple of children, so Rachel's pleased with that. And then when Leah realizes that she's no longer having children, she gives her servant to, to be wife to Jacob. Jacob has a couple more children. But finally... Rachel has a son, 
the 11th born son of Jacob is Joseph. And then she has another baby named Benjamin, and she dies during childbirth. So let's, I want to look at those guys just a minute so that you can kind of get a sense of what is happening here. So let's dig a little deeper into the life of uh, Joseph and Judah, just to kind of understand the backstory for these Jews as they're hearing the gospel written. What do they hear? Well, first, as I just spoke, said, Judah was the son of Leah, and Joseph was the son of Rachel. As I stated, Reuben was the firstborn. He should have had all of the uh, prominence within the family. Why do we see Judah and Joseph as having the prominence? It's because the first three sons of Jacob kind of disqualified themselves. Reuben had sex with one of Jacob's wives. Not good. Simeon and Levi, after their father had made an alliance with a neighboring tribe, went in and killed all the men while they were healing from their circumcisions. So that left the fourthborn the, the next in line. But we see how the writer of Genesis begins to play this thing out. Look at what starts to develop between these 12 sons. I mean, I can't imagine growing up in a house with four wives and 12 sons from those four wives. Can you imagine the favoritism and the problems that that would have caused? Well, because Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, the one that Jacob loved so much, Joseph favored him, gave him a coat of many colors, gave him honor. Well, the older sons were out shepherding, doing their thing, and Jacob would send Joseph out and say, go check on them. And then he'd go out there and he'd find that they were up to some sort of shenanigans. He'd come back and report to Jacob that the boys were doing wrong things out there in the field. I don't know what they were doing. But uh, whatever it was, they would get in trouble by Jacob. And then the brothers would hate Joseph for it. Well, one day Joseph goes out at Jacob's request to meet with his brothers. And from a distance, they see him coming and they say, look at this guy. But what are they referencing? Why are they so bent out of shape this time as opposed to other times? Because the 37th chapter of Genesis reports that when Joseph was 17 years old, that he had a dream. And in this dream, all of his brothers bowed down to him. And then he has a subsequent dream, and not only did his brothers, but his father and his mother bowed down to him. Well, they couldn't stand that. They were like, oh, we're going to serve you? Who do you think you are? So when he's coming up, they said, check out this dreamer. Here he comes. We'll, we'll, here's how we'll deal with his dreams. We're going to th- throw him down in this pit. We're going to kill him. And then we'll just tell his father that an animal got to him. Well, while they were contemplating all of that, Judah decides, hey, you know what? Let's not kill him. Here's a band of Midianites on their way to Egypt to go you know, sell their wares. Why don't we sell him to the Midianites? And then we're, he's off of our hands. And then we're not guilty of killing our brother. So they package him up. They give him to the Midianites. And he ends up in the house of Potiphar, an elite man in that community of Egypt. Notice there's two stories in 
the 38th chapter and in the 39th chapter. That comes in after Joseph is sold, and, and we kind of, the narrative kind of says, you know, as a side note, here's what's happening with Judah. While Joseph is kind of working his way and navigating the Egyptian hierarchy, here's what's happening to Judah. Because now we're going to see that the writer of Genesis is focused on Judah and Joseph as the primary people in this, in this narrative. And he says, Judah in the 38th chapter is basically guilty of sexual misconduct with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. The, the story has a redemptive quality to it, but it's still the fact that Judah is guilty of sexual misconduct. In the 39th chapter, it talks about the rise of Joseph. So it's Judah and Joseph. 39th chapter is talking about the rise of Joseph in the ranks of Potiphar's house till basically Potiphar has turned over everything to him. And Potiphar's wife decides that she's got an eye for Joseph. But Joseph refuses to give in to that sexual temptation. But he's charged as if he does. He's charged if he's guilty of sexual misconduct. So you've got Judah who's guilty of sexual misconduct, and you've got Joseph who's not guilty but suffers the penalty of it. He goes into prison, and in prison he continues, and that's in the 40th and the 41st chapter, he continues to be a dreamer of dreams. So Joseph, the son of Jacob, a dreamer of dreams, is now in an Egyptian prison. That's the, that's the story we're supposed to get. But when we start to continue to read through the 42nd, 43rd, 44th, all the way 46th chapter, what we're seeing is that there's a huge famine in the land, and the children of Jacob are about to be annihilated through starvation, through famine. But who has risen up now through the ranks of Egypt, from the prisons of Egypt all the way to being second in command? It's Joseph. And he has, after his dreams of seven plentiful years and seven lean years, Pharaoh says, I can't think of anybody better to run this deal than you, man. You get this, you take care of this. So Joseph had all of these storehouses of grain and food, and people were selling out to become part of the Egyptian economy, and they were being saved by the acts of Joseph. So they worked their way there. Joseph saves, saves them. Look at these real quickly in Genesis 49. Now they're all settled in, they've all reconciled, they've all said, I'm sorry. It's all good, you know, they're living in the land and Jacob is there. And now Jacob begins to bless his sons. And he steps through this. And if you read the 49th chapter of Genesis, it's like, man, I'm glad my dad didn't bless me like some of the, some of the things Jacob says. You know, he calls some of them unstable as water. He calls a couple of them weapons of cruelty and violence. You know, this is curses them. But when he gets to Judah, he, he really raises him up. He says, Judah, you're like a, a lion's whelp. Your brothers will praise you. The hand of, your hand will be in the neck of your enemies. He just really blesses him. And then he basically says that from you is going to come a king. And that king is going to lead to the gathering of all the people. The people are going to gather around him. Then he goes on through Zebulun and Issachar and Dan and the other, the other boys. 
And then he gets down to Joseph, and he does the same thing with Joseph that he does with Judah. He's got five stanzas of blessing. He's saying, you're fruitful, you're, you're an amazing guy, you're going to be great in battle, and, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be the head. You know, this is, these are pretty heady things. And they, and they took these things to heart. What's interesting is when you get over into the book of Numbers, after the children of Israel have left Egypt and 430 years later, after all of this stuff has happened, they've multiplied. The numbers of, from Numbers 126, you've got uh, Judah being numbered at 74,600. And then you have in Numbers 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, you have the two sons of Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh, they, were, they represented Joseph as two of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. And when you add their numbers together, the tribe of Joseph is 72,700. They, they represent the two largest numbers. Judah and Joseph represent the two largest numbers of the sons of Jacob. As time progressed, the animosity and the competitiveness between these two sons kind of grew. During the time of the judges, you know, they, they kind of had little skirmishes, little challenges, little problems. But under David, they were all consolidated. David was the son, the great-great-grandson of Judah. And as such, he was granted lands in the deep south. And his capital city was Hebron and was really far away from anything. It's like you can't get there from here. And when he became king, in order to consolidate the nations, he became king over Judah, the tribe of Judah, about seven years before he became king over all of Israel, all of the tribes of Jacob. And when he did, he moved his headquarters up to Jerusalem, which was centrally located between all of the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. And then that that kind of consolidated empire continued to exist under Solomon. But when Solomon died, Rehoboam took a really hard stance against the northern tribes. And when he did, a guy named Jeroboam from one of the northern tribes just said, you know what, we don't need to put up with this stuff. Well, let's break away. And that's how you get the 10 northern tribes of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And for a couple of hundred years, you've got two lines, a northern king, Israel and Judah, and they had two separate kings, and they run in parallel with each other, and you can read those stories from First Chronicles and, and, and the kings. The point is, is the animosity between these groups only grew. The ten tribes in the north began to be referred to as Israel or Ephraim. And the southern tribe was always referred to as Judah. During the 8th century BCE, Assyria came in and they sacked the northern tribes, carried their people away into captivity, dispersed them throughout the Assyrian Empire, and left just, a, and then supplanted them with other mixed uh, peoples that they had conquered from other lands. The southern kingdom of Judah continued for another hundred years. But at the end of the 7th century, the king of Babylon did exactly to the southern kingdom of Judah what had already happened to the, the northern tribes. So then the prophets began to muse 
about what was going on. Uh, Isaiah is one of them, and his school of prophets, they begin to think about someday something's got to happen with Joseph and Judah. This schism has to be reconciled. This is what gets interesting to me, is if you look at Isaiah, the seventh chapter, Isaiah 7, 1 starts with, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, see this is the southern kingdom, he's saying that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, so that's the northern tribe, so Syria and the northern king are fighting against Judah. Ahaz, the son of Jotham in Judah, the king of Judah. And when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, notice that word Ephraim there, that's one of the tribes, of that's Joseph's son, and the whole Israel is now named Ephraim, even though there were tribes of Dan and Issachar and and on all of them, they were all lumped into this one name, Ephraim. So the people were, were, were sick. The, the southern tribe of Judah knew that they could not take them on. But Isaiah said, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. He says in the 11th verse that God was going to give a sign And in the 14th verse, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the maiden shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey. See, he's going to, before he can learn to refuse the good and choose the evil, these kings are going to be gone. So their occupation isn't going to last very long. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying this animosity that exists between you guys between the northern tribe and the southern tribe, that's going to be reconciled someday. This Emmanuel's going to rise up, but before he's even able to come on the scene, this, these tribal, this tribalism is going to be over. Look at the ninth chapter. In chapter 9, he's taught, this is the passage in the sixth verse. It says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and on the throne of David, and over his kingdom, justice will last forever. But embedded in this passage, this hope of a king that's going to come to Judah, look at this promise in the very first part of that ninth chapter. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the northern tribes. He's basically saying, hey, the northern tribes are going to be blessed. There's going to be a king that's going to come on the scene, and they're not going to be excluded from that blessing. He says it again in the 11th chapter, In the first verse, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse is the great-great-grandson of Judah, and he's the father of David. And now he's saying that a branch is going to shoot from his his roots, and it's going to bear fruit. And look what this root of Jesse is going to do. Look at the verse 10 of the 11th chapter. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand for a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And he's going to raise up a signal in the 12th verse for all the nations, and will assemble 
the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. He's saying that this root of Jesse was going to be the reconciliation of Joseph and Judah. In Israel's hopes, in these prophetic hopes, they were saying, if we could just be a tribe that was on the same page, if we could just work together, then the whole plan of God to be a blessing to the nations could actually be realized. And in Isaiah's conception, there was going to be a king that would rise up that was going to be that reconciliation so that Ephraim would no longer be jealous of Judah and Judah would stop harassing Ephraim. Now, we never see that happen. All we see is mayhem. But we have this little word from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 37, verse 16, when he's contemplating returning from Babylonian captivity... Look at the hope that he embeds. And I think he's getting these hopes from the promises that were made by Isaiah. In, Isaiah, in Ezekiel 37, while Ezekiel is in Babylonian captivity, he writes this in the 15th verse. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Isn't that interesting? He's saying in the 21st verse, I will take people from Israel from all the nations, and I will gather them together from all around into their own land. They shall no longer be two nations. Let's look at the 22nd verse. And I will make them one nation in the land and the mountains of Israel, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over all of them. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They were looking for this time when a king was going to come and they would be reconciled. They would no longer be divided nations. Can you imagine the hope? Can you imagine being... Ir having irreconcilable differences with a family member, a deep, a brother, and spending 30, 40, 50 years, and then in your late 70s or early 80s, somehow dreaming this whole time that you could be reconciled, that you were finally reconciled, if that was your hope, this was hundreds of years of separation and, and divisiveness that existed between these people. And what the belief was is that Joseph and Judah would again come together in relationship by a king. And this king says in the 24th verse of the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, says, my servant David shall be king over them. I think it's interesting as we go further into Matthew, as Matthew depicts Jesus coming in on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is called the triumphal entry, they're crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about, they're talking about Jesus being the son of David. They're, they've got this Messiah thing going. They believe that Jesus is this guy that's going to reconcile all of these things. 
These prophets didn't, weren't thinking big enough. I'm, sometimes they were, but Jesus was not only going to reconcile the two sticks of Israel and Ephraim and Judah, but they were going to reconcile all of the nations under this king. So here in the genealogy of Jesus, we see Jacob, the father of Joseph. And this Joseph, this tribe of Joseph, he's now the protector Matthew's telling those people, listen, the story of Jesus is a story of the reconciliation of Israel. Our hopes were realized when Jesus was born and Joseph kept him safe by taking him like our forefather Joseph took Judah and all of his seed into Egypt and protected them from famine. This Joseph took Jesus into Egypt to protect him from Herod. Now this Jesus has been saved and protected. This Joseph, this dreamer of dreams, used all of that to help protect. This is a call to all of Israel to be reconciled. They're saying if Joseph can be reconciled and take care of the seed of Judah, this king that would come that would reconcile all things to himself, all the tribes could be accepting of Jesus. Now, if you're in the synagogue and you're hearing these things, I mean, this is resonating with you. If you're a Jew, you're seeing this story unfold. It's in Jesus that Judah and Joseph are reconciled. All the hopes of Israel for their reconciliation, for the reconciliation of their their centuries of estrangement come together in Jesus. That's what Matthew is saying. Listen, Joseph saved Jesus. So what do you think? Would it be okay to think like first century Jews and look at the nuances of that story? Do you think that was just chance that our Joseph, the father of Jesus, was a dreamer of dreams, took Jesus to Egypt? Or is there something behind it? Is there a theological point that Matthew is trying to make? Is that theological point that Jesus is the reconciliation of Judah and Joseph. I leave it for you to investigate and to consider. Uh, But for now, that's all I've got. I sure appreciate you guys listening to my podcast. Uh, This one was uh, probably a little more detailed than some of the others and a little more free form. Uh, But I'd be interested to hear uh, if it impacted you or if it caused you to think in any new or creative ways. Uh, If you want to visit and see the show notes of this podcast, you can go out to planetjesus.net or visit us on Stitcher, Spotify, or iTunes. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next week or two.